On Sunday night, we began considering some uh, events leading up to the triumphant entry um, of Jesus. We saw the healing of a blind Bartimaeus in the city of Jericho. And tonight, uh, we're going to consider a spiritual healing in the same city of the notorious tax collector Zacchaeus. Now, this is a story that I'm sure most of us are familiar with, particularly if we grew up uh, in Sunday school. I know that when I was a child in Sunday school, there was a song about this particular individual. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And perhaps you know that song. I want to spend our time delving into this encounter in the Bible, rather than me singing. (laughs) And we'll see how this scene fits into the overall play. Uh, Luke chapter 19 is going to be our text. Luke chapter 19, and I'm sure Pastor Peter will forgive me going to the book that he's preaching through, because I figured he's up to chapter 9, I'm in chapter 19, so it'll probably take three or four years before he gets to that, (laughs) and you will have forgotten this particular study by then. So Luke, Luke chapter 19, and we will read the first ten verses. Commencing reading at verse 1, the Word of God says, And Jesus entered... And passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was. And he could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. And said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, O this day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen. The title for the sermon tonight is A Sinner Meets the Saviour. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity that you have granted to us to meet in this very simple way. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, the assurance that you have heard our prayers uh, that we have offered unto you when we look forward uh, to how you answer. Father, we ask now as we come to your word that you would speak to us very clearly and powerfully and that we would have receptive hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. The scene that we have recorded before us is one of the final events before the final week leading up to the cross. And its significance is not to be understated, for it is a reminder of the point and the purpose of the Incarnation. It is an account that reveals what the forthcoming Passion Week is all about. And that is the salvation of mankind in a spiritual sense. Jesus was not going to Jerusalem to defeat and overthrow Rome, as was common perception, but rather he was going to Jerusalem to defeat sin, Satan, 
and death. And this account of the salvation of Zacchaeus is a reminder as to what the mission of Jesus was. He declares it so succinctly in verse 10 where he says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. This was the mission. This is why Jesus came into the world. He did not come to simply be a good teacher or a moral leader. He did not come to simply provide a human example of a spiritual life, but rather he came, he left heaven, dwelt with humanity to save doomed sinners. That is the gospel. Jesus came to provide salvation. And this fact is illustrated so gloriously in Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. Jesus at this time is still in the city of Jericho. If you remember, we mentioned on Sunday night that Jesus, in keeping with the divine timetable, has set his eyes on Jerusalem. And in the text, he and the disciples are on the final leg of the journey. Jericho, this beautiful and picturesque city, is the final stopover before the final climb to Jerusalem. The crowds at this time had swelled due to the coming Passover. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would converge upon Jerusalem at this particular time. As Jesus was making his way through Jericho, we're introduced to Zacchaeus. Verse 2 informs us that he was chief amongst the publicans and that he was rich The term publican refers to tax collectors, not to a pub owner as we use the term. And this is the sixth and final reference to a tax collector in the Gospel of Luke. And what we must understand is that a tax collector was hated. They were utterly despised. They were an outcast in Israel. So much so that they were forbidden to enter the synagogue. And the only friends a tax collector would have is a fellow tax collector. They were on the lowest possible rung of the socioeconomic ladder. They were considered traitors for they had sided with Rome. One writer said this and explaining uh, the role of a tax collector. He said the Roman occupation of Israel involved more than just a military presence. The nation was also subject to Roman taxation. The taxes in Galilee, for example, were forwarded by tax collectors to Herod Antipas and by him to Rome. Antipas sold tax franchises to the highest bidder, and such franchises were a lucrative business. Tax collectors had a certain amount that they were required to collect, and whatever they collected beyond that, they were permitted to keep. In addition to the poll tax, income tax and land tax, there were taxes on transport of goods, letters, produce, using roads, crossing bridges and almost anything else the ravenous, greedy minds of the tax collectors could think of. All of that left plenty of room for larceny, extortion, exploitation and even loan sharking as tax collectors loan money at exorbitant interest to those who are unable to pay their taxes. The tax collectors also employed thugs to physically intimidate people into paying and to beat up those who refused. And this is why tax collectors were completely and utterly despised. 
They had gotten into bed with the enemy of Rome and were brutally squeezing every possible sin out of their own people using whatever means necessary. Extortion, blackmail, force to simply fill the coffers of Rome and line their own pockets. But Zacchaeus would have been hated even more for notice in verse 2 that he was not just an ordinary tax collector, which was bad enough, but he was a chief tax collector. And this is the only time that this position is mentioned in the New Testament. And it means that he ruled over a group of tax collectors. He was head of the region, which would mean he would also collect a portion from those who worked under him. So this man was hated in a deep and comprehensive way. There is an important phrase at the end of verse 2. It says, and he was rich. And this reveals much about his character. A tax collector who was rich was a dishonest extortioner. He had been ripping off his own people. And hence, Zacchaeus was a notorious scoundrel. The one who in broad daylight robbed his own people in the disguise of taxation all for his own personal benefit. And it was this man who had obviously heard about Jesus. And he was very curious. He wanted to catch a glimpse. He he knew that Jesus was in his town. He'd probably heard about the healing of Bartimaeus and hence wanted to meet this one who was performing these amazing miracles. The problem was this man could not get anywhere near Jesus. The crowds were large and he was very short. Can you picture this small man trying to push his way through the multitude all to no avail? Can you picture him jumping up and down trying to look over the, the tall guys hoping to see Jesus? You can picture his frustration as his attempts fail. You can almost hear him bickering to himself, why do I have to be so short? But we have to give this man 10 out of 10 for effort, for he did not give up in his attempt to see Jesus, but rather he had another idea. And his idea was this. He thought that if he could get ahead of Jesus, he could climb a tree and then he might catch a glimpse of Jesus. And the execution of this plan is almost humorous. We have this grown man. A man with power, wealth and prestige and he is running flat out down the streets. And we must understand that in this time it was incredibly unusual and even dishonorable for a grown man to run, particularly an official. Oh, jogging wasn't a trend back then. And one would be looked down upon for running like this. But not only did he run, but he also decided to climb a tree. And once again, this would be a very unusual sight. Even today, if you and I saw a grown man climbing a tree on the main road for no reason, we would think that is really weird. And no doubt Zacchaeus would have been the victim of much scorn and ridicule for performing such a stunts. You can picture the people pointing and laughing, scoffing and mocking. Look at the crazy tax collector. What what is he doing? He's gone crazy. He's out of his mind. 
But as one preacher said, I wish there were more of us who did not mind being laughed at if only what we did helped us see Jesus. The type of tree that Zacchaeus climbed, according to the text, is a sycamore tree. This is most probably a mulberry tree. You know, I remember as a kid, our neighbour had a mulberry tree and we spent many hours there, generally coming out very purple and my mum being very upset about the stains in our clothes. But, but what these trees were known for in Bible times was the shade that they provided and they also had low branches, branches that almost came down to the ground. And this was very useful for Zacchaeus because he was height impaired. Now it seems that Zacchaeus found himself at a good perch and looked on as Jesus moved closer. And I tend to think that he must have nearly fell out when Jesus stopped where he was located. Now you can picture the thoughts bouncing around in his mind. My plan worked, I can see him. But, but then Jesus looked straight at him and spoke his name. And I wonder what was going on in his mind. You know, what was happening? Why is he talking to me? How does Jesus know my name? Some speculate that Zacchaeus and Matthew, being an ex-tax collector, may have been acquainted. This may be possible, but in light of Christ's omniscience, that is not a requirement in order for Christ to know his name. And if Jesus calling out to him wasn't enough to make him fall out of the tree, the next statement most certainly would have. Zacchaeus, come down, for I'm going to your house for dinner. I'm dining at your place, Zacchaeus. Hurry up and come down. I can picture him yelling back, are you serious? You know, is this some form of joke? For we must understand that no Jew would ever associate with a tax collector, let alone have a meal in his home. He can understand if Zacchaeus was somewhat sceptical. For the attitude of the crowd towards him is seen in their response to Jesus' request. Verse 7 says they murmured against him. This is a very strong word. They voiced their disapproval. Jesus' desire to share a meal with this notorious traitor, one who they all despised. And as an aside, this is the only occasion where Jesus invites himself into someone's home like this. And the audience couldn't believe their ears and eyes that Jesus was making such a request. For no Jew would pollute himself in doing this. And yet Jesus cares very little about what the crowds were thinking. He extends his hand to this one who was universally despised and implores him to come hastily so Jesus could come into his home. Here we have Zacchaeus, the one who thought he was seeking Jesus, but it turned out that Jesus was seeking him. Now, unfortunately, we are not told about what Jesus said to Zacchaeus. We can only speculate about the conversation that was undertaken around the meal table. What is interesting is the phrase employed in verse 7, gone to be a guest. This phrase means to loosen one's clothing in preparation for staying overnight. So it seems that Jesus may have even stayed for the nights, and this would have really stirred the crowd up. Why spend time with such an infidel? 
Now what was said in the house we cannot be certain, but what happened we know for sure. This encounter with Jesus changed his life. This universally despised tax collector, this notorious sinner was saved. Verse 9 makes this more than clear. Salvation came to his house. He was now the son of Abraham. Not in the physical sense, but rather in the spiritual sense. And that salvation had occurred is also evident in verse 8. For a great change had occurred in the life of this man. That he would give back all that he had extorted and also give to the poor. That this great transformation is evidence for conversion. This was an unmistakable proof that Zacchaeus was a new creature. His actions proved the change within, you know, as James tells us, his faith was shown by his works. A true conversion will always result in a change of life. And hence it's clear that this despised man, that this notorious sinner had been saved. And this is the final recorded conversion before the cross. And it is a vital scene, for it reveals to all present the point and the purpose of what was about to unfold. That being the salvation of sinners, for that is why Christ came. And it is for that reason that he was headed to Jerusalem. Now this is a wonderful story, for it is the account of the conversion of a soul And every conversion is a special story. And this conversion has much to teach us about salvation, about the gospel, about evangelism. Much could be said, but I want to leave you with just two thoughts. So number one, the gospel is powerful enough to save anybody. In Jewish thinking, the tax collector was the worst of the worst. He was a rogue, a debauched and desolate individual. One who was despised, regarded as an atrocious person. One who was cut off. One who was segregated from the synagogue and society. They they were worse than the slaves. For at least the slave was loyal, unlike these low-life traders. This is how they were regarded, the lowest of the low, and yet it is this one who was saved. But it's not only society's opinion of this man that highlights the wonder of his salvation, but it's also what Jesus had just taught. Notice in verse 2, Zacchaeus was a rich man. And Jesus had just taught in the previous chapter that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus had just taught this. It was incredibly difficult for a rich man to come to Christ. But after this statement, Jesus said, but the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. And the impossible had occurred. For Zacchaeus, he was wealthy and he had been saved, proving nothing is impossible with God. And beloved, this reminds us that there are none who are too bad or or too wicked to be saved. There are none who are too beyond the power of Christ's grace 
Wherever there is life, there is hope. There are such things as incurable physical conditions, but there are no incurable spiritual conditions with the gospel. There is no heart too hard for the explosive power of the gospel to break. There is no sin too bad for for Jesus to pay the price for. My friend, all can be saved. And when Jesus dying on the cross, he has rendered all men savable. That's the doctrine of reconciliation. Now, not all men will be saved, for not all appropriate salvation, but all can be saved. None are beyond the grace of God. Even the worst of the worst, the most notorious criminal can be saved. The most hard-hearted, self-sufficient individual can be saved. For, for, For the gospel, my friend, is incredibly powerful. It's the power of God. It is the dunamis, the dynamite. And nothing is impossible with God. We see that in the story of Zacchaeus. And my friend, we can take hearts that that any sinner may be healed if they come to Christ. None are too wicked or, or too far gone to be reached with the glorious gospel of Jesus. You know, we, we can often get very discouraged about our unsaved family and friends. I, I know I can. But we can get disheartened about the lost condition of our neighbours and our work colleagues. And and these reactions are normal. These are right for the situation is serious. If we are unconcerned about the state of our loved ones, then something would be wrong. But take heart, wherever there is life, there is hope. The gospel is powerful. Your son... Your daughter, your grandchildren, your parents, your niece, your nephew, your brother, your sister, your friends, your work colleagues, your your neighbor. None are too wicked or too hard to be saved. All can be saved. And I encourage you, my friend, don't give up. Continue to pray. Continue to share the gospel. Continue to live a consistent life. And ask God to help you to believe in the power of the gospel. For it possesses the power to save anybody. Think of Zacchaeus. Think of the thief on the cross. Think of the Apostle Paul. Think of yourself. Any man, woman or child can come to Christ and experience salvation. Jesus is in the business of saving sinners. The gospel is incredibly powerful. Don't forget that. And number two, the gospel needs to be shared with everybody. And in light of the previous point of the power of the gospel, we need to remember that the gospel needs to be shared with all people from all walks of life. You know, the gospel is not just a message to be shared with middle class white people. It's not, pardon me, it's not a message to be confined just to our church or, or to our inner sanctum of friends. It is for all and we need to share it. You know, we have been entrusted with the mission to evangelize the world. That's why Jesus has left us here. You know, this is the Great Commission. And we need to follow the example of Jesus and share the gospel with all. Even to be willing to reach out to the notoriously wicked or, or for the people who are despised within our society, for that is what Jesus did. We need to be willing to speak 
to the unsaved, interact with them, involve ourselves in their lives, invite them to our house for a meal, form relationships, and not just become isolated in our Christian cliques, but, but, but reach out, speak a word for Christ, pass on the gospel tract. Share the gospel with even the worst of sinners. Talk to that homosexual you know about Christ. Speak to the drug addict about the gospel. may, May we become more like Jesus and have compassion for sinners and be willing to reach out and share and show the gospel to them. You know, I know that that I need to become a lot more like Jesus, for this is something that I don't do as well or as often as I would like or, or as my Savior wants me to. You know, I know I need God's help to get better at this, and perhaps I'm not alone. You know, may we as a church and, and as individuals be diligent and faithful to the mission that we have been called to and share the gospel with every living creature. And may God convince us of the necessity and enable us to perform it. Amen.